0: Thank you, Mike. Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to be uh, this morning, the eighth chapter of the book of Acts. You know, we've been going through this book now for about six months, and it's interesting to see how God has used it to challenge us in our own individual walks, to challenge us as a church as well. And uh, it's just interesting today, I'll just go ahead and say that the... Uh, how ironic it is that we get to chapter 8 at this particular point and uh, on this particular day. Just interesting how God moves and how God works and how God does just what he wants to do at just the right time. And so Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning. How many of you would say that um, you are a creature of habit? Let me see your hand real quickly. All right, the first service, almost everybody, it seemed like, raised their hand. Creatures of habit. I don't know why this is the case. I guess it's because we have an aversion to comfort zones. Uh, uh, to getting out of our comfort zone. We like to be where it's comfortable. We like to be where we know what to expect and we know who we're with and all those things are comfortable to us. Uh, But many of us are creatures of habit. Some of you perhaps you still sit in the same spot in this church that you've sat for years and years and years. When you go to the restaurant, you go to the same spot in that restaurant. I remember when I was a kid, we used to go to Shoney's on Victory Drive. Every Friday night, my family, we would go to Shoney's, and we would always sit in the booth in the back. I have no idea why. It wasn't like it was any cleaner or better or the food tasted better. It was just we're creatures of habit. And I can tell when I look out, I know right where you sit most of the time. I'll even joke and comment with some of you. I'll say, you know, you're messing things up. you, you usually sit over here and now now you're... Creature's a habit. My dad, I remember the truck. We've had the truck I drive now for seven years, and my dad, almost up to the day he passed away a year ago, he'd get in the truck, and uh, I like this truck. This is a, I like this new truck. It's like, Dad, I had it for like five years. Yeah, yeah, I like it too, but, you know, it's kind of an old truck now. It's kind of getting that direction. We're creatures of habit. We like to be where our comfort zone is. Here's Here's the problem with that, is that God has no comfort zone. God rarely allows us to stay in our comfort zone, and if we're willing to be obedient, and if we're willing to be challenged, if we're willing to be stretched as Christians, and if our Christianity is not just a bless me, bless me, bless me mentality, but if our Christianity is truly, God, I want to partner with you and I want to engage this world which uh, you have sent me into, which you have called me to, then we're going to be stretched out of our comfort zone. It is inevitable that that's going to happen. And so whenever we get to Acts chapter 8, we find that there is a, uh, just a very clear picture of what it means to be stretched outside of our comfort zone. And as, as we move through this passage, I'm just going to go ahead and warn you that there's going to be a real application for us as a church uh, as we look at this particular portion of Acts chapter 8. Let me give you a little bit of a recap of what happened, has happened up to this point. In chapter 7, we find a man named Stephen has been introduced uh, into the book of Acts. Stephen was a person who would ultimately become the first martyr of, uh, of the early church of, of uh, Christianity. He actually is introduced in chapter 6, but in chapter 7 he gives a defense before the Sanhedrin and it's in that lengthy defense that he ultimately says everything that they needed to hear for them to ultimately have him killed for his faith in Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 7 we find that Stephen specifically has given his life for the sake of the gospel. And as a result of that, of that uh, execution of Stephen, he was stoned at the hands of the Jewish leaders, as a result of that, persecution erupted in the early church there in Jerusalem. And the early Christians were just scattered all over that region of the world. In fact, when you get to Acts chapter 8, you can tell and you can notice here, if you look down in verse 4, it tells us that that very thing happened. They were scattered because they were being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And so this early church is seeing God move in tremendous ways, but they're facing an, an enormous amount of persecution as a result of it. And so let's go ahead and pick up here, Acts chapter 8. In verse 4, we're just going to read a few verses down through the end of verse 8 and pull out one principle this morning. And then there will be a good, solid opportunity for us to apply this passage to our ministry as a church, and I certainly hope for you as a Christian as well. So Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. It says, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So, verse 8 tells us, there was much rejoicing in that city. Let me just, for, for the sake of uh, understanding here, let's just focus on a couple of key key mentionings there in that particular passage we look at. First of all, the first question that comes to mind for you perhaps is, who in the world is this person, Philip? Well Philip, in this context here in Acts chapter eight, is not the same Philip that we read of earlier in the gospels. This is not Philip who was the disciple follower of Jesus. This is a different Philip altogether. And believe it or not, you know him better than you think you do, because he was mentioned along with Stephen in Acts chapter six. Philip was one of those original seven that was chosen by the Christians in the church in Jerusalem to help meet the needs of the widows there that were being overlooked when food was distributed. Remember that from chapter 6. Well, Stephen was chosen, Philip was chosen, five other men were chosen as well. So immediately we know something about Philip. We know that he was a Christian. We know that he was a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he was a Jew by birth. However, from a cultural perspective, he would have known Greek and he would have been enculturated into the Greek way of life. Philip was, as well, by virtue of having been chosen to meet those needs, a man full of the Spirit, full of God's power, full of wisdom, and he was a man of good reputation. So this was a man who's already been mentioned in the book of Acts, and now he crops up again here in Acts chapter 8. So we find Philip here, he is mentioned, and in verse 5 it says that he went down, you'll see it there, to the city of Samaria. And that's the other thing we need to focus on. What is the city of Samaria here in Acts chapter 8? And I'll just go ahead and say, this is crucial. If we miss Samaria in this message this morning, you miss the whole entire message. And so we have to understand, what is Samaria here and how does it relate to us? Well, Samaria was both a city and it was also a region. It was a city that in the Old Testament times had been the capital of Israel. The Israelite kings, upon their death, would often be buried there in the city of Samaria. And through the years, it would not only be a city, but it would also be a region as well. But it was a city, and it was a region with a history. Here's why. 721 BC, about 750 years before these events in the book of Acts that we've just read of. 721 BC, Samaria would be ultimately settled into what we know of it in the new testament here's how it happened the assyrians had long since been enemies of the people of israel and in 721 bc it was the assyrians who came in and they Basically, captured Jerusalem. They took over the people of Israel, and they, the people of Israel were ushered out of their land. They were taken off into captivity by the Assyrians. Well, what the Assyrians would often do, here, and this was common practice for them, they, whenever they would conquer a land, would often vacuum out the people of that land, and then they would replace them with foreign people that they had previously conquered of all different nationalities. And so when the Assyrians Assyrians take over Jerusalem, they take over this region, they, they basically exiled out many of the people of Israel, not all of them, but many of them, and they replaced them with captives of other lands to take their place. And so here's what would happen over a period of time, years, decades, even over the course of those centuries that would follow, those uh, uh, foreigners from other lands who had been placed there in the land of Israel would begin to marry the the remnant, the Israelites that had been left behind. So that over a period of time, you have a number of families, a significant number of families that are not completely Jewish by heritage. One of the parents would be Jewish, but the other parent would be Gentile. And so you had an entire new race of people that were being brought into existence in the centuries that would follow, such that by the time we get to the New Testament, here's what you had. You had a completely new existence of people that had not previously existed. They were partly Jewish by heritage and partly Gentile by heritage. They were the Samaritans. And they still lived in that land. And by the time Jesus walked the earth, you find a tremendous divide between the the, the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. It was to such a degree that Jews would not even eat off of the same plates or use the same utensils that a Samaritan had used. It was that bad. A Jew would not speak to a Samaritan and a Samaritan would not speak to a Jew. The Samaritans had set up their own separate place of worship. They called it Mount Gerizim, at least up until a Jewish general later destroyed that particular place. And so by the time Jesus would come along, it was commonplace for Jews of his day to have great, great animosity towards the Samaritan people. Geographically, it was interesting because you would have Judea to the south, you'd have Galilee to the north, and in between you had Samaria. Samaria. Now, I know this is a far cry, but just to help to visualize it, imagine you've got Georgia to the south, You've got North Carolina to the north. No pun intended if you're from South Carolina. I love you. But just imagine for a moment that South Carolina, that region between Jordan and North Carolina, is Samaria. Now here's what would often happen, and this is amazing. It shows the divide between, between these people. If, they were, if, if a Jew was traveling in the first century, and they were traveling from Judea to the south to Galilee to the north, what they would do is they would hop east over the Jordan River, travel through a wilderness area called Perea, and as soon as they cleared the border of Samaria, they would hop back over... The, Jordan River into Galilee. It would be like us traveling from, from uh, Savannah, Georgia, all the way up to Wilmington, North Carolina. But that region called South Carolina, we have such animosity, we have such hatred for those people, and we have such, such a deep divide that it, we would rather than just take the interstate up there, which is the easiest, we would rather hop a boat, sail up the east coast, and then as soon as we clear the border, land somewhere, and then make our way to where we want to go, North Carolina. It's just it, It's not even fathomable for us to think that, but that's exactly the way they operated. It was a tremendous divide between the Jews and the Samaritans of their day. Geographically, culturally, spiritually, almost at every level. To the point to where, if you may remember... In the book of Luke, when Jesus would be traveling through, uh, uh, through that region, uh, the Samaritans, would they, would they didn't want to hear anything he had to say. Why? He was a Jew. And what did a couple of Jesus' own followers, James and John, want to do? You remember in Luke? And they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Just torch these people right here on the spot. After all, they, they, didn't, they don't want to listen to you. They don't care anything about you. They haven't received you. Just let us call down fire from heaven. Can we, can we, can we, can we, can we? That's what you see there. <laughs> And it's reflective of the animosity and the divide that went between Jewish God-fearing people and the people of Samaria. Jesus didn't grant that request. In fact, flip over with me, if you will, to John chapter 4. You'll see something exactly the opposite of how Jesus viewed the people there in Samaria. John chapter 4, we won't spend a lot of time here. Uh, I can encourage you, it's a lengthy passage. You can read it sometime today if you haven't already. It's just a great, great passage of Scripture. John chapter 4, let's just see a little bit of Jesus' mentality in regards to this particular area, the area of Samaria. Pick up with me, John chapter 4, look down in verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, John 4, verse 3, it says, He left Judea and went away into Galilee. Remember, Judea to the south, Galilee to the north. How did He get there? Verse 4, and He had to pass through Samaria. Jesus did not operate like everybody else. He didn't hop over the Jordan River, travel up through Perea, and cross back over whenever He cleared this wretched land of the Samaritans. It says He had to pass through Samaria. Samaria. Why was that? If you read that passage, you find that there is a Samaritan woman there who had quite a history, quite a past. She was in need of forgiveness. She was in need of healing. She was in need of of, of eternal life. She was in need of a savior. Jesus was the only one that could fill that, that need in her life. He introduces herself to her. She's surprised that he even talks to her. By the end of the conversation, she's trusted him as her Messiah. And if you notice at the end of that particular passage in John chapter 4, you find that at the very end of it, she's gone back to her homeland, back to her people there in Samaria, and she has shared Christ with them. So Jesus' mentality was completely different from those who followed him. In other words, whenever we look at Jesus, he understood the need to reach those in Samaria. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what does he say? Wait in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will become my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, and where? Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so Jesus went there. No good Jew went to Samaria. Jesus went there. And in Acts 1-8, he sends every believer who trusts in him there as well. And by the time we get to Acts 8, there is one fellow named Philip who heard it and actually chose to go. Let me just ask a question for you. A hard question. Something for you to think through. And here's the question. Where perhaps, is my Samaria. Ask that question of yourself. Where is it where God has placed in your life, it may be in close proximity, it may be some distance away, that when you think about going there, it is completely outside your comfort zone. It is not something you relish the thought of. It is not something that comes naturally to you. But you know there is a place called Samaria somewhere in your life. And God has called you to go there. And the very thought of it scares you to death. Maybe even above that, not just where is your Samaria, but who is your Samaria? There may may be a person in your life that God has placed right in close proximity to you perhaps. Perhaps. And it's a person that's not like you. They're, they're, they're different than you. They've experienced things that you've never experienced before. They've lived in places you've never lived before. They may be way above, far above you in many different areas of life, or you may feel like they're far beneath you as though there is a difference. But when you think about who is my Samaria, there may be people or segments of people that for far too long you have thought, you know, I could never go to that person. I could never invest my life in that, in that, that type of a person or in that segment of our population. And yet God says we need to be willing, not just willing, but we need to flat go <laughs> to Samaria. And He makes it very, very clear to us that we're commanded to go, and by His example, he, he sends us, and he sets the example for us. Here's the harder question. If you know where it is, and if you know who it is as a Christian, what are you going to do to engage that place? What are you going to do to engage that person with the light and with the message of the gospel? And so here's our principle this morning. It's just a real simple one. It's just one. I hope you'll jot it down. Your Samaria. May be closer than you think, and it 's waiting for you to engage it your Samaria listen it may just may be closer than you think it is, <laughs> and God is waiting for you to engage it. Why is it that we have to engage the Samaria of our life? why is it that that person that place that Part of the culture. Why is it that we must engage it? A couple of reasons. Number one, because we're sent there. And to fail to go and to fail to engage it is nothing short of disobedience. But number two, because the very eternities of the people who are in Samaria depend upon our witness. We can go uh, until, until the cows come home over the whole uh, uh, election and everything that is wrapped up in that. We don't have time to do that. I don't even know that there's a place to do that most of the time. God called us to go, and whether we, r- rather than trying to argue over when God saves a person or how God saves a person, why don't we just, as churches today in this world in which we live, why don't we just determine ourselves and set our sights on those that God sent us to reach and let God sort out all those details in the end? You know what I'm saying? I mean, he just told, told us to go, <laughs> And when we go, I can tell you, there ain't nobody going to be saved short of hearing the gospel. Because how are they going to be saved without having heard the gospel itself? And God has sent us as people who know him, who have been greatly blessed by him, who have a spot in heaven reserved for us. He has sent us to the people of this world, those just like us and those who are not. And he's called us not to cast judgment. He's called us not to wait till we're comfortable. He has called us once we have tasted and seen that he is good and we have a relationship with Christ. He has called us to answer the call to go. When we embrace the master, we embrace the mission of the master as well. So Jesus went to Samaria. He commands us to go to Samaria. Philip heard the call. Philip goes to Samaria. What's the result? Look down in verse 8. Back in Acts chapter 8. Look down in verse 8. Here's the result. Philip heard and he went. God used his life miraculously. Many were healed. There were uh, supernatural things that were accomplished by God through him. Not by Philip, but by God through him. And what was the result of it? Verse 8. There was much rejoicing in that city because God sent a person to Samaria, and because that person went faithfully, verse 5, and proclaimed Christ there, the result was that there was much rejoicing that came as a result of it. You know, as we've gone through this book, the book of Acts, God has challenged us as a church, and and I'm I'm excited that for a number of you, you've really responded to that. You know, we looked recently, um, Acts chapter 6, we talked about how the picture there was that the early church in Jerusalem raised up seven men to meet the physical needs of the widows that were there by distributing food to them. They were being overlooked. And if you remember that passage, we talked about the, uh, the, the need for there to be some to serve those literal needs so that the gospel could t- continue to advance had a couple in our church come to me somewhere around that time, may have been a little before, a little after, I can't remember. And they said, you know, we want to do something to help minister to those who are in our congregation who's who have a spouse that has already passed away. And this Thanksgiving, we have family away, but we're not traveling anywhere, and we desire to just stay planted here, and we we just even choose to stay here so that we can just try to be used by God to be a blessing to those who who are widowed and they don't have any family here, and uh, we we want to spearhead being able to. Re- them this Thanksgiving and be able to share a Thanksgiving meal together what can we do to help do that and they've taken it and flat run with it and what does it say the example already is in Acts chapter 6 that's a response to the scriptures the way God tells us just last week I made mention of a opportunity to get some information about a ministry to orphans. You know, you look in Scripture, James chapter 1, and even in Acts it tells us to meet the needs and to serve those who are uh, overlooked, those who are forgotten. And it mentions the widows and the orphans so many times parallel one to another in the New Testament. Had a couple come to me and say, we have a real heart for reaching orphans in our world. What can we do to maybe raise awareness? So we took a little step last week. We're going to look to take another bigger step here sometime soon that you'll hear about. But it's a response to God's Word. It's it's God says, this is how you need to reach people with the love and with the message of the gospel of Christ. And there are people that have responded to that. But then it dawned on me, you know, we are engaged in missions to a large degree here in this church. Have been for a long time. We're about to take our 11th trip this January to the Philippines, to the same area, the same city, the same region. And every time the gospel spreads a little further out, God's making a difference there. And we're just a small part of that. We send shoeboxes that are going to be delivered in this January trip. We send money every month. We do all kind of stuff. We pray for the people there. We're planted there in the Philippines. Here, stateside, we've been involved in ministry in Virginia, partnering with the church taking trips up there, sending money every month, praying for them consistently, and it dawned on me that we don't even have a place here in our own city where we're doing that, where we are invested for the long haul to say, hey, we're, we're nothing special, but we know a God who made you special and wants to save you and, and bring life to you, and we're here to tell you about him. We're not going anywhere. We're going to plant here. We're going to be here for the long haul. We don't have a place here in town where we're doing that outside of our own property lines. And God really began to deal with my heart about that, that, you know, we're not even reaching Jerusalem. <laughs> he never called us to save the whole city. He didn't call us to take Christ in the doors he opens there. But there was no place here in our Jerusalem, in our closest locale outside of our property, where we are taking Jesus over the long haul. And I felt like God opened a door for us. And ironically, not only is it Jerusalem geographically, but I'll tell you, it's Samaria <laughs> for a lot of people. It's Samaria right here, 15 minutes from our steps. And so I asked Perlene Burns, who is engaged in ministry in the inner city, if she would come and if she would speak. And ironically, it works out to where I talked with her about this date. And it ends up to where this is the day she comes. And I didn't try to make it happen. It just God changed the message last week, not for this reason, but it's just a perfect fit. And I asked Perlene if she would come and if she would just share a little bit about a place here, 15 minutes from right here where we live, called the Fred Wessels Homes. And it's a place where there's a great need for the gospel. And I've asked Perlene to come if she would. She's the director of the Baptist Center, inner city mission downtown, that we also partner with. But I've asked her if she would come and to share. So let's give Perlene a good welcome this morning.
1: Thank you for allowing me to come and to share where Samaria is in our area. It's right around 704 Wheaton Street. How many of you, when you start downtown, veer off Victory Drive or President Street to go through Samaria, which happens to be Fred Wessels, Was Hitch Village, also Blackshear Homes, There's so many right there just in that area. You go over on the west side, there's a Samaria there as well. And I do so appreciate someone coming down and being able to intentionally have an outreach in that community. Now, a little over a year ago in the sanctuary down at the Baptist Center, there were five ladies that would be in there any given Sunday if they invited someone to come with them might have ten that was about the max, but the Lord uh, sent a pastor to us who has a love and a desire to serve in the Samarias of this earth, and there has been an intentional outreach, and some from this church met with a with a group from Atlanta as a matter of fact, who came about a year ago. And did an intentional outreach in Fred Wessels. And people began to come. They're very territorial in these housing projects. It was known because we were right there right beside Hitch that the Baptist Center was for Hitch. So this outreach began to open the door that no, it was not just for Hitch. It was for Fred Wessels. It was for any place for anybody to come. So now as we look across our parking lot, we can see Tia coming across. She's pushing a wheelchair that looks almost like a baby carriage with TJ in it. Now TJ is seven years old, but he has severe cerebral palsy. Tia is a wonderful mother, but she started to come to come to the center to make a quilt. We teach sewing there as well. And she wanted to use the scraps that she had had over the years with T.J. to make a memory quilt because they don't have a lot of money that they can do things with. So she began to come and to make this quilt. We began to love on her and to witness to her. Tia prayed and received Christ as her personal Savior and now continues to come. Anytime that the doors are open, you will see Tia coming. She came one evening. They had no food in their home. TJ had been very ill. She had had to pick him up from school, take him to the doctors. His fever was in excess of 102. She was there that evening for a Bible study on a Thursday evening because they had no food in their home to eat. So after feeding them there, because we do serve meals when we have, have things at the center, we were able to send her with bags of food that a lot of it came from the youth department of this church and others as well that you come and help to provide that ministry to the people in that community. We can also look out and we can see uh, Maisha my, uh, come with her four toddlers. And Yolanda with her four children to come along. They're, they're wanting to have someone to love them, to care for them. When these little toddlers come in, they squeal and they run and they love and they just have the best time because they feel safe. This is a safe area for them. Now, there are many in that community. As I shared a little over a year ago, there was five in the church. This morning, probably at 9 o'clock, there was probably anywhere from 50 to 70 who was there for early service, mostly homeless. Served breakfast to between probably 75 and 100. That's the usual. And now as we speak in this worship service, that sanctuary is full probably 70, 100, 100 plus people that are there. Why? Because people stepped outside of their comfort zones and they went and they have loved and they have shared. And so now people are coming in to listen to the word of God and to be saved. Pastor Harry has baptized 51 this year and now has 12 more that he's working with that's ready to be baptized. That's because somebody has gone out and shared. The, the fields are white, not only there, but all over. Now, I'd like to share a testimony with you where someone did make an investment in someone's life, and what a difference, what you can see, the results that you can see from just simply stepping outside of your comfort zone. This young lady, or, or lady, She's in her 50s now. (laughs) That's young to me. But anyway, uh, if any of you have ever seen the movie Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, I don't know if you have or not, but most of us probably have. And if you remember the Lady Chablis. Now, you take a female and put it in that role. That's pretty much Deborah. I was trying to think, how can I describe so somebody will have a picture Of what Deborah looks like anyway she had lived a very hard life and it's very it was very evident in her life but someone witnessed to her loved on her she came she accepted Christ as her personal Savior and she came to the pastor and she said I want to give my testimony in church and of course knowing her life Pastor Harry said please write it out and let me read it first (laughs) And he did, and he said, yes, please do that. I want to read this just as Deborah put it in her own handwriting, and she has read it to several groups since then, and I have permission from her to read it to you. She says, praise God and the Lord Jesus Christ, glory. I walk in sin from my 20s to my 40s, then in my 50s. I dip and dap in churches. I always had an excuse for not going to church and getting close to our Lord. I lived in Hitch Village, walked past the church Monday through Sunday, going to the family dollar. I would go to the clothes closet, but never for services. I would run into members and Miss Connie and Pastor Harry, tell a tale, no, a lie. I was coming to Bible study or service, but never came. Then one Saturday, Miss Connie and Pastor Harry seen me doing my regular and said, come on out to Sunday and to church. Me and my uh, friend, as we walk away, and I say to her, you want to go? And she said, H, no. I laugh. But when I got home, it stayed on my mind and in my heart. Sunday, I got dressed, washed first, and came to church and been there ever since. Monday, Wednesday, Sunday, any other day, I can get in there to hear the the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and God. I'm, um, I'm homeless. I live with my oldest daughter and my baby daughter in Virginia. I'm jobless, hurt my back and myself in a job, but with the grace of the Almighty God and Lord Jesus Christ the Son, I'm here to tell you life is good. The Lord Jesus Christ have seen in his heart to give a sinner like me peace, a place in his heart. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will do the same for you. Before I became a member of this church and felt the love of Jesus, I would have never got up here to speak of Jesus or God. But I'm here today because this is what Jesus wants of me to share to, uh, so others will follow. So feel the love of Jesus Christ and follow him to eternal life. Amen. Folks, that's what happens when we step outside of our comfort zone. Believe me, when I went there, it was certainly not what I wanted to do. I went there as, because I felt obligated to do so. I was serving on the board. I felt like it would be my duty because resignations were read. But let me tell you, it doesn't take long before God can stir a Christian's heart. Hear those words, a Christian's heart that is out of step with what he wants us to do in our lives. And now I can truly tell you that I do something that it may have been outside of my comfort zone at one time, but not anymore. And I even get paid to do it, and I can't believe that. <laughs> Thank you so much for allowing me to come and share the story of the people who live right here in your neighborhood. There is very little male influence in the children's lives there. They desperately need someone who loves them, who care enough, to, even though they don't smell very good sometimes, even though their language is not very good to put an arm around them, to love them, to be Jesus with skin on. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Perlene. The average income on an annual basis per family there at the Fred Wessel's Homes area is less than $15,000 per family per year. And the needs there are great. Does God call us to go in and meet every one of those physical needs? I don't believe that he calls us to meet every one of them in a sense that he knows that we will be able to give and to meet every one of those needs. But he does call us to tell them of how they can trust in a Savior that can meet every legitimate need of their life, just as he has met every need of our lives as well. You know, for some of you, the thought of going to a place that you've never been, to people you've never met, The first response is not overwhelming joy. It's fear, trepidation, and almost gnashing of teeth, perhaps, at the thought of it. But I can just tell you, more likely than not, whoever it was that God used to get the gospel to you for a pretty significant number, it may have been someone who stepped out of their zone to talk to you so that you could have an opportunity to hear. Shame on us. Not that if we don't save the world... But if we don't walk through the open doors that God gives us and the extent to which we can make a difference in that little part of our Jerusalem and our city and in a sense our Samaria is the extent to which we decide to engage it. I could announce it. We do an outreach in December which we're working on and planning to be on site there on property uh, in the midst of that place in the midst of those people to touch them and to talk to them and to to demonstrate the love of Christ. The extent to which it succeeds is the extent to which we engage. It's just that simple. God already did the hard work when he died and when he rose. It's up to us now to choose to answer the call, to do just like Philip and to go to a people that we don't know, to a place perhaps we've never been, simply in obedience to a call that is far too clear for us to argue away with heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. You know, my question to you is, not do you understand the need to go to Samaria? And I won't even ask if you know where it is, because I think if you couldn't find one on your own, at least this morning, you've been informed of one 15 minutes from here. But the answer is, are you willing to go? Not, Lord, have you spoken or have you called, but are you willing to go? Maybe rather than us praying, Lord, show me if I need to be involved, maybe the right prayer would be, God, show me if I don't need to be involved. Why not if our default mode, what if it were not, I'm going, Lord, unless you stop me. (laughs) Lord, the default mode of my Christian walk is I'm going to go and I'm going to tell and I'm going to follow and I'm going to obey. And if there's an area you don't want me to go to or a person you'd not have me to speak with or if you want me to hold back instead of go, Lord, show me and I'll pray that you do that. But... As far as the regular norm for our lives, why not today we decide that it be to go and to tell and to share the simple message of the gospel, whether it be in Jerusalem, Samaria, or the uttermost parts of the the earth? So where's your Samaria? Who's your Samaria? Is it the person you work with, someone in your neighborhood, someone you go to school with on your campus? Who is your Samaria and where is your Samaria? And are you willing to engage it so that all might hear and know Jesus? as you do. For some of you this morning, perhaps the need in your life is not to go yet. The need for you is to surrender, to give your life to Jesus. And the reason you've come today, and the whole reason you're here, is to hear of a Savior who has paid everything already for you. He's already died on the cross for your sin. He's risen from the dead, proving that He's God. And the only thing that, waits, that awaits and needs to be done is for you to turn from your sin, the Bible calls that repentance, and to place your faith in Jesus, to surrender your life to Him, and to ask Him to come in and take over. If you make that decision today, then your life will be completely brand new. You'll have a place in heaven waiting for you. God will never leave you, and he'll begin to, to use your life as you have it continually yielded to him. And so whatever decision there is today to make, well, I sure hope our hearts are willing to follow as God leads us. God, we pray today as we have our, now our time of decision, our time of invitation, Lord, that you'd bless these responses, Lord, that our decisions would be driven by you Lord, that our hearts would be obedient and that would follow where you lead us. Lord, I pray that you would not only send us out of our comfort zone, but Lord, may we be willing to go. And Father, may you be the one who gets the glory for it. Save the one who doesn't know you today, those who have never come to Christ. Compel them and draw them to yourself today that they might give their lives to Christ, even right where they sit this morning. So thank you for what you'll do. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Leads us in our song of decision.